Hello and welcome to this Bible study presented by the Monroe Church of Christ. I'm Derek Glover, the preacher at the Monroe Church of Christ, and we're so glad that you've chosen to join us for a continuation of a study we've been doing on how we got the Bible. And it's going to be a bit of a longer one today as we wrap this topic up and try to conclude uh, everything we've been talking about. Uh, the whole journey of the Bible really, as we began several weeks ago, deals with how authors wrote, uh, how their writings were preserved, and how their writings were aggregated and edited and continued to be rewritten uh, and recopied and put together. And we followed the journey of, of the linguistics and the history into a more modern era where we're dealing with churches coming to a prominence, institutional churches like the Roman Catholic Church and others. And uh, as we move through that history, we see how the Bible was preserved through all of that time, through the providence of God, all of those writings continuing to be collected and printed. But these last few weeks have been difficult weeks because we've been talking about the history of the Bible as it pertains to getting it into the hands of people in a common language. Uh, for many, many centuries, it was only in Latin. And then uh, some translations in parts of Europe and eventually into English, which we talked about last time. Uh, and now we're coming into the time of King James and we're going to conclude with the production of the King James Bible because that is a pretty common uh, version of the Bible that we have in the English language and it really was the first time we had an agreed upon authorized version of the Bible in English that people could have and hold in their hands and it is the reason and it gave rise to all the other versions that have come to be in the time since. So that's kind of where we want to end the story because that gets us to today. That gets us to a version that we hold in our hands. And from that, we've, we've developed, and we'll talk about that. But again, going to be a bit of a longer one today, so strap in here, okay? Setting the scene, we had Bloody Mary, the Catholic queen who persecuted Protestants. And following from her, we had Elizabeth, a Protestant queen who drove out Catholics and helped to further establish the, the Anglican church. And then we have James. James comes from Scotland. King James, uh, as he arrives from Scotland, now this causes a bit of an uproar in, the, in the, the church because again, just as with the Catholics, the, the state and the church had become intertwined. So the bishops, those who oversaw the church, they were, uh, they were functionaries of the government and they benefited from the power to tax and they benefited from the power to, to, to levy tithes uh, uh, on their church members, uh, on their parishioners, and they became quite wealthy. And there was quite a bit of corruption in the Anglican Church, but there were factions in the Anglican Church. You had the Episcopalians. This would have been the Orthodox Anglican. This would have been the High Church of England. And then you had um, kind of a resistance movement in, within the Anglican Church known as the Puritans or the Presbyterians. The Puritans, which would later uh, be, be what we call the pilgrims who came to this country. Uh, the, the Puritans and the Presbyterians were mostly in Scotland and they believe very strongly in the idea of reform. They come from the Calvinist uh, persuasion from John Calvin and those in Switzerland and they were attempting to reform the church 
uh, by removing some of that corruption, and they sought to, to end this practice of bishops overseeing uh, regions or counties and, and move into a more localized, autonomous, congregational-type setting. And so they had their side, and the Episcopalian Anglican side existed as well. Now, James becoming king presents a problem because he, he's coming from Scotland, so the Episcopalians, the Anglicans, and the bishops are very, very worried. They're very concerned about what this means for them. And that's the context we find ourselves in now in this lesson today as we wrap up. Remember, James is coming into to the throne, and the Puritans... Uh, the, his, his fellow Scots remind him, hey, you need to reform the church. You need to clean this up. And remember, just as the Roman Catholic Church had a pope as the head of the church, the Anglican Church has a head as well. The spiritual head of the church is, in a legal sense, the king or queen. It's the monarch. Uh, now, uh, that's today mostly nominal. But uh, the, the Archbishop of, of Canterbury would be considered the functional head of the church today in the, in the Anglican world. But James is reminded by his countrymen, um, you're on our side. You're a, you're a Puritan, you're a Presbyterian, and you need to reform the church. And he says, okay, I want to keep my people happy because he, he knows history, and he knows that kings can be killed, and, and he wants to protect himself. Now, on the other side of that, the bishops are very concerned. The bishops of the Anglican Church are very concerned about this Scottish king coming to the throne and what he might do to disrupt their power. And so they send a group to try and persuade him. And, and one of those bishops is a man named Richard Bancroft. Uh, Richard Bancroft was very concerned, and he began reading the things that James had been writing. James was a very prolific writer, uh, not a very good speller, so his, his stuff is hard to read unless you get a modern uh, translation of it. Uh, or a modern version of it. So Richard Bancroft decides, I'm going to try and persuade James. So he takes the things that even James himself has written regarding the power of the monarch, the absolute authority of the king, and he says, oh, you know, great King James, you know, you're right about this. We want to preserve this. And so he uh, continues to use that uh, and, and almost suck up to James and get into his inner circle and begin to persuade him. Um, and James, being a, a political person uh, and, and certainly very savvy and playing the politics of both sides of this, because there's a threat to him on either side. If he sides with the Puritans, then he's going to upset the people in the country he now resides, England. If he upsets, uh, or if he sides with the Episcopalians in England, he's going to upset his own people who could rebel against him and dethrone him. And so uh, James, being very political, um, agrees with the bishops and uh, sides with them in order to protect his power and his position. And he even allows for the persecution of the Presbyterians, these reformers. Uh, notice how history repeats itself. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, intertwined in the corruptions of state affairs, uh, becomes a persecutory force amongst Christians. And here the Anglican Church now is, is doing the same, though they, though they had roots in the Protestant Reformation. So uh, there's this back and forth with the Puritans and with the, uh, the Episcopalians, and, and there's all this, uh, this drama and, and imprisonment and torture and murder of, of, uh, of these dissidents, these Presbyterians. And James finally says it's time to call a meeting. 
Now, uh, we talked several weeks ago about Constantine, and uh, Emperor Constantine uh, called together, he, he, he uh, codified Christianity as the state religion, right, as the official religion of the Roman Empire. He did that for political reasons. He did that so that he could consolidate his power and unify an empire using a church. Um, and, and this is much the same that James is going to do here with uh, these two sides of the Anglican church. He calls a meeting. He doesn't really care what happens. He doesn't really care what they agree on. He just wants there to be agreement. And so he calls them together. It's called the Hampton Court Conference. Uh, and it takes place, and in that meeting, the king begins, King James begins with an hour-long speech uh, in which he asserts his authority that ultimately he is the head of the church and he will decide all matters and he has the final say, but he wants them to come to some agreements on their problems. Now, the, the uh, Episcopalians are very upset that the Puritans get a seat at the table. The Puritans are thrilled that they get a seat at the table. And so the two sides come together. One, thing, one of the things the Puritans insisted on was the use of the Geneva Bible. Do you remember the Geneva Bible? This was the Bible that was produced uh, in Switzerland, in Geneva, under the protection of John Calvin. Uh, and it was, it was produced um, with using a lot of William Tyndale's work, his translation, uh, re-edited with footnotes and um, marginal notes meant to explain some of the text and cross-reference the text with, with itself. Um, and the Puritans loved this because it took the interpretation power out of the hands of the religious elite and the political elite and put it in the hands of the reader. They could understand for themselves. And, and so they insisted that the Geneva Bible be what was used by the church. And of course, um, the the the... Presbyterians would not allow this. They wanted to continue using the Bishop's Bible. The Bishop's Bible was uh, also a production that the Anglican Church used in order to um, maintain its power, and it was translated in a biased way. It was written in a way that changed certain words to support and, uh, and maintain their power. So they're, they're at this impasse. Now, um, James de declares uh, many, many things, makes many, many decisions in this meeting, and almost all of them side with the Anglican Church, with the, with the, uh, the, the Episcopalian side of the Anglican Church. But he realizes he's got to give something to the Puritans. He, they can't leave that room without winning something. And so he decides to authorize a translation of the Bible, a new translation. And he says to the Puritans, to the, to the Presbyterians, you may have your own authorized translation of the Bible. I will allow this. Now, again, authorized because the king had to give permission for anything to be published. The, the monarch has to give permission, particularly when it comes to biblical translations, for anything that's going to be produced. And so he says, I will give authorization to produce a new translation of the Bible that is favorable to you. And so the, he orders all the best scholars from England, from England, to come together and to begin work on a translation of Scripture. They come together, and he wants to produce, he wants them to produce the best faithful translation. But there are some rules. 
there are some rules. And we're going to talk about some of these rules um, and, 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 and go over them in a minute. But, he want, but there are two basic rules. First of all, there are to be no marginal notes, no footnotes, no reference material in here, no explanations. And the second thing, this Bible translation will only be used for the use in the church. It will only be for the use of the priests and the bishops, not for the common person to own and possess. So with those two rules in mind, he gathers together the experts. Um, this is a very scary time, by the way, in, um, in England, in Europe. Uh, remember, we had the, the Catholics uh, pushing out Protestants. You had Protestants at war with Catholics. It's gone back and forth, and at any moment, uh, anyone is expecting a war to break out between the two sides. And when, if you think it's weird that churches would be fighting with each other uh, in such violent ways, remember, they were in effect proxies for their nations and for their states. And so France and Spain and England, um, they're, they're constantly on the brink of war. Uh, there was a bit of an uproar when James announced uh, around this time that his son Charles would marry the daughter of the Spanish king. Uh, because, boy, they were the, they were the enemy, uh, and, and they were uh, Catholic, and they were a group to be feared. But uh, Catholics and Protestants continued to fight. 1606, the gunpowder plot, where uh, a group of Catholic uh, uh, rebels attempted to blow up the House of Lords, uh, and they were captured, and they were put to death. But despite all of this, the scholars began to gather, and Richard Bancroft that bishop is put in charge of the group that will be translating the Bible. Now, you may not know the name Richard Bancroft, but you should, because he is a key player in how we got the type of Bible we got. There's some things, whatever translation, whatever version you're using, there are some things that exist in our scriptures today, uh, words and, and explanations of words and a tone that exists because of people like Richard Bancroft. So you need to know this person's name. He's put in charge of the group and he sets out a number of rules. Remember, this is all about the preservation of a system. So while they want to give the Puritans their own translation and allow them to have this translation, um, something different because they were in disagreement with the Bishop's Bible. So they're going to get a translation, but he's going to oversee and make sure that nothing that changes will affect the power of the throne or the power of the bishops. So that's what he's working off of here. Um, here are some of the rules. First of all, uh, the bishop's Bible was to be used as the basis for the translation. They were going to take the bishop's Bible and they were going to just make edits to it uh, and, and, and effectively change some things here and there. But, um, but remember, it's a biased translation. So already they're starting from a prejudiced position of translating the, uh, and, and, and revising the Bishop's Bible. So you had to start with the accepted translation and work from there. Uh, um, they were required to retain the common use, commonly used names of prophets and of people. Um, so for instance, the, 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 the name Jesus uh, would remain Jesus and not Yeshua. They were not translating from the ancient text. They were not going to get the Hebrew and the Greek and translate from there. They were taking the Bishop's Bible and then they were making comparison when needed for clarification. Uh, that's a real problem with the translation. They were, you know, uh, they were instructed to keep certain words 
translated the same. These commonly used words were to be retained. Words like church. Do you know where we get the word church in Scripture? It comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia means a gathered people or a called people. Now, a better word in English for this is congregation. The word congregation is a far more faithful translation of the word ecclesia than church. But when, when these words were being translated, going all the way back to the time of Jerome with the Latin Vulgate, they used ecclesia to mean church, which institutionalized the word. Now church was a place you went. Church was not a group of people. We say all the time the church is the people, not the building. But in that time, it was very important that they maintain the significance of the building. And they built these giant ornate cathedrals and these houses of worship. And that was the church. And you went to church. Sometimes we say that. We know what we mean. I've got to go to church. We go to church. No, we go to a building. We meet as a church. We are the church, the congregation, the ecclesia, the gathered or called people, but they had to retain the word church. They weren't allowed to change that, again, trying to solidify the importance of the institution. Um, words kept with the common usage, so they're not to change anything that the fathers of the church defined. They were, they were trying to make the language more Christian, right? More more proper. Well, the truth of the matter is what they were really putting into the language was their own Victorian sensibility, uh, their ideas of propriety and of uh, upper crust kind of mentality. There's some things you need to know about the Bible. Um, when Jesus calms the storm, you remember that story where he calms the storm? Now, if I were to ask you, what does Jesus say to the storm? You might say, peace, be still. And in almost every version of the Bible, you will find phrases like, peace, be still. If we translate faithfully from the Greek text, what Jesus really said was, shut up and be quiet. Same thing when he cast out demons. Uh, he did not, you know, say, peace, be still, like to the storm. He said, shut up and be quiet and go away. Jesus used some kind of rough language. Uh, and yet we don't have that translated as faithfully because they wanted to keep things pure and holy and, and, and maybe even too holy because they would change the meanings of words and the tone of words to fit their culture's sensibilities and how they define something that was proper. So it was a way to make it more religious and less vulgar, not vulgar like dirty words, but vulgar in the common sense. Paul was one of these people. He had some salty language. Did you know that about Paul? That he had some salty language? Uh, he talks about um, the, those who impose the right of circumcision on, on the Gentiles. And he says, I hope that the way we read it in our Bible today is that I hope that they will cut themselves off from the assembly. The way the original language reads, it's more like he's saying, I hope that the knife slips and they cut their assembly off from themselves. I mean, he was, he was pretty direct. He talks about uh, some of the doctrines of false teachers and refers to it, and in our Bibles it would say rubbish, 
something to that effect. Um, and the word he uses in the Greek is, is a word that we have today for um, animal waste, manure, but starting with the letter S. That's the Greek equivalent. Paul says that their doctrine is animal excrement. And that was, that's not there now because they softened it. They wanted it to be less common. They wanted it to be less in the language of the average person and more in the language of the elite, of the priestly. And so there are things, even today, you will not find in modern translations because it's been impacted by the thinking of the words being holy. Uh, and, and, and so that's, that's been changed. They adopted their sense of morality in how they read the words. And, and that's, that's worth knowing. Uh, the division of chapters was to be retained. That's, that's fair. That's a pretty good rule, actually. Although chapters sometimes come in weird places um, and, and break up things. But, and chapter divisions was kind of a new thing in, in Bible uh, translating and, and revising. And so they kept that. Again, the rule of no marginal notes. Nothing written to explain anything. We don't want to explain for people. We want to leave it to the priests and the bishops to explain. Um, now, they did allow some footnotes when it came to cross-referencing certain scripture. So if, for instance, um, Paul is referencing words from the Old Testament, they might include a footnote with that scripture reference uh, for, for cross-referencing. Oftentimes what they would use is italics uh, in, the, in the typeface. Sometimes you read a King James Bible, you will run across words that are in italics. If it's in italics, it means they made a word up and stuck it in there. Uh, that, that a phrase in the original language um, has some gaps in it in their language, and so in order to make it understandable, they had to add some words. They had to change some things. Um, so, when you see that, just understand that's what that is, that in order to fill in the gaps, rather than go back to the original language and translate more faithfully, they just put a new word in there. It's not there in the original but they do that to make it clear, and they put it in italics to differentiate. So these groups, uh, all these, these scholars, they split up, and their process was they would each take a portion of Scripture, work as a group to translate it, and then come all back together and compare their notes and offer to correct one another. That was also one of the rules that they had to, if you see a problem, you have to point it out. That was, that was one of the rules they made. Uh, uh, other rules included if, if you can't, figure something out, find someone who can. And the limitation was it had to be someone in England. They weren't allowed to go out into the greater part of Europe to Germany or Switzerland and find some of these people to help them understand something. They had to keep it in England. That's very important because they're trying to kind of bias this work here. Um, if there's other confusion, they were allowed to reference other versions. They could use the Geneva Bible. They could use the Matthew Bible if they needed to uh, figure something out and there was no other way to do it. Um, each group gathered their notes together and then they made copies of each other's notes and they worked together to then come to agreement on one another's work and produce, um, produce a new version of the Bible. However, there, is wit there are witnesses, uh, the, the printers, they, they would be sent to the printers. There were printers of the day that actually kept notes, um, and there were printers who were authorized by the crown, by the way. So, so we know who these people were because they had the authorization of the king 
to be producing these things. And we have found journals and diaries of some of these people, and they attest to the fact that uh, what they received to be placed on the printer was a bishop's Bible with notes made in the margin showing what to change, what words to take out, what words to move. Um, so this, this was essentially the bishop's Bible, but with a few concessions for the sake of the Puritans. Uh, when the King James Bible came out, by the way, it was not a big deal at the time. People didn't rush out to buy it. It was not a lot of fanfare. It wasn't a, this seminal moment in history uh, because everyone assumed that when the next monarch comes to power, this could all change. Uh, the, the, the religion of the, of the land could change. And so no one was really interested in, in getting out there and investing very quickly in this very new uh, translation. Um, and each monarch before, by the way, I mean, you, you can see they had their own version of the Bible, so they just assumed the next king to come to power is going to have his own version too. Uh, and so, so it really wasn't treated with much fanfare. The version of the King, the King James Bible that was produced at that time, the original one, in 1611, um, is not what we have today. It has been revised over and over and over. The King James Bible you can buy in a bookstore today has about 100,000 changes to it from its original. So when, when you run across those people that believe very strongly you should only use the King James Bible, uh, ask them which one and watch their mind kind of blow out the side of their ear because there's lots of them. There's so many different versions of the King James Bible uh, and so much has changed. Uh, one of the major changes is dealing with the Apocrypha. The, you and we talked about the Apocrypha several, several weeks ago. Uh, the King James Bible originally had the Apocrypha in it. The reason that uh, it, had, it had begun to be taken out and there was arguments about it was because people wanted to avoid being Catholic, uh, and they were trying to not look cat. We do so much in in reaction to what other people are doing and saying, um, and, and so the apocrypha. James did not care for the apocrypha, again because he comes from the Presbyterian perspective, and they did not believe in the um, these apocalyptic books, the the deuter deuterocanonical books as they're called. Um, the Anglicans wanted it. They wanted it in. Uh, and so it was translated, and it was included, but over time it was left out. And the reason it was left out is it's expensive to print books. It was expensive to get supplies. It was expensive for the ink, the time for the printer. And so if they were looking to save money, because printers made their money by selling the books uh, and, and recouping some of the investment of the books, uh, the print business is a hard business to make money in, even today. But it was very difficult then, and so they had to, if they could cut costs on their production, it helped their bottom line. And a lot of printers would simply leave the Apocrypha out because it saved on ink and paper and time. Uh, and the Puritans liked that, and they preferred that. And so within a couple of hundred years of the original printing, the Apocrypha was gone. You cannot find a King James Bible uh, by the late 1800s that had an apocrypha in it. So while that, it didn't last long, but it also has been fairly recent that Protestant Bibles had an apocrypha. And today we think of it as exclusively a, uh, a Catholic thing. I remember growing up we were told Catholic Bibles have extra books. Well, all the Bibles had extra books at one time, um, but, but that, that you can go back and listen to that lesson on the apocrypha if you want. Um,
there were there were a lot of ardent critics at the time, the King James Bible, because of um, because of some of the errors that were made, and some of these errors were printing errors, some of them were spelling errors. There is one Bible out there uh, called the Adulterer's Bible. Uh, it is a Bible that omitted the word "not," and so you would read, and it would say, "Thou shall commit adultery." You know, uh, so that's that. In fact, the the printer of that Bible was eventually put in prison because of it. But there are other humorous errors that are out there. But the question remained: the question remained at this time: is this accurate? Because remember, they didn't have the ancient texts. They were very England-focused. The world did not go much beyond England for them. Even into Europe, they didn't think about places like Egypt. They didn't think about places like Turkey. They didn't think about the places where these manuscripts that we talked about weeks and weeks ago had made their way. And it would take people like Constantin von Tischendorf, who we talked about previously, to go and to seek out these manuscripts, to seek out these ancient texts, and to make comparisons and to see what we have and to see if it's accurate. Uh, and, and we have those texts now. Archaeologists and historians have found them, preserved them, and translated them. And as it turns out, we do have the words. The King James Bible was a remarkably good translation for the time. It was probably, at, up until that point, the most accurate translation of Scripture. That would certainly not be the case now for a number of reasons. Number one, we, we, we know Hebrew far better than they knew then. They had kicked all the Jews out of their country. They didn't have anyone around that knew how to read Hebrew. Um, and, and we do now. And we know the Hebrew and we understand the language. And we have the ancient texts. We know far more about the Hebrew language now than we did then. So our translations have improved. Um, we also... Um, we also translate the Greek more properly. Um, Greek is a language that evolves. And so they knew Greek. You know, the, the Brits knew Greek. It was part of their training, their upbringing, their schooling. But, um, but they knew the classical Greek. They knew the Greek of the forum. They knew uh, what the high class people spoke. The Bible was written in Koine Greek, Hellenistic Greek, the Greek of the common folk it's different. It has some differences. And so the, the, the translations of the Greek were not as faithful. They were not as well done. And again, they're mostly doing translations from translations of translations of copies. Uh, all this work kind of goes back to the Latin Vulgate and such. And so it, 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 it was good at the time. It's not so much now because we've learned so much. You know, translation is a hard thing. Word for word doesn't work. Word for word translations don't work. And um, there, are, there are reasons for that. There are words that exist in some languages that describe things for which words do not exist in our language. Um, you can translate something somewhat word for word or literally word for word, but that doesn't mean you can make it understandable. And to make it more understandable, sometimes you can't translate it word for word. You have to translate concept for concept. And this is the balance that all translators and, and editors of Scripture have been trying to do. And this is why you find people on both sides of arguments saying, well, this is a more pure translation, but this is a better... Look, you can do a word-for-word -word translation, and you can fill in the gaps the best you can, but at a certain point, 
you're going to have to make something understandable. I typically use a New American Standard Version. It is the most word-for-word -word faithful translation that we have, I think, in the English language. It is not very easy to read all the time. There are other versions that read a lot better, that, uh, that convey concepts a lot more. And I'll give you some examples of this. Um, one thing to remember is that um, idioms, idioms are a big part of Scripture. That is sayings, okay? We have little sayings, like an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Okay, that's one of our sayings. Um, we understand that. Other people might not. Uh, term called awkward silence. If you're sitting in a conversation and it drags a little bit, we have an awkward silence. Uh, the Dutch have a term for an awkward silence. But if you literally translate it, it means, and then a minister walked by. Because in their culture... It's like you're having a conversation about something and then the minister walks by and you got to be quiet because you have, you've been talking about something you shouldn't. So they say, and the minister walked by. If you translate that literally, we don't have any, that makes no sense to us. We understand awkward silence. Um, we talk about people being hot under the collar um, and um, the French have a phrase uh, that says literally someone has mustard up their nose. So, you can have mustard up your nose in France, and that means hot under the collar in the United States and in, in America. In Jeremiah, there is a term that's used repeatedly in the King James translation, where he says, rise up early in the morning. Um, and over and over he says, rise up early in the morning, rise up early in the morning. Well, we know now a little better the Hebrew idiom there actually means to do something continually. When you read Jeremiah and the King James, it makes no sense. Rise up early in the morning, but if you understand the idiom, you know that it means to do something continual. So what's better, to translate that word for word or to translate that concept for concept? We also, I mean, I mean, imagine today, you know, because language changes, right? Language changes. Imagine it's the year 2000, and you were to say to someone, or someone were to say to you, yeah, I, I was, uh, I FaceTimed with my, with my parents today, and then I took a picture of my food with my phone, and I snapped it to my friend, and then I uh, got directions to, uh, to the theater on my phone, and, I, and then I watched a movie on my phone, and I, this would make no sense. Imagine it's 1899. And someone were to say to you, I ran a red light on my way to work. None of that makes any sense because the world changes. Words change. Words change meaning. Concepts change as a result of that. And so we have to understand that as words change, the way that we deal with Scripture has to change. Um, the name of God is an important one that, that, that the King James struggled with because here they come across this word Yahweh, and it's just consonants. There's no vowels in the uh, in the English language or in the in the Hebrew language. There's also no J. They have an H, uh, and they have Ys, and they have that sound. But they they put a lot of Js in things, and there were words they just made up. Um, the name of God, Yahweh. They didn't know what to do with that. The the Tetragrammaton. They didn't know what to do with it. So they they either put in all caps the word Lord, or they just made up a name called Jehovah, where they took Elohim 
and Yahweh, and they substituted the letters in between the consonants, and that's how they got Jehovah. It's a made-up word. It's not the name of God. It's a word that the translators made up. Uh, and so these, these, the way that they translated and the way that they took the approach to editing really did impact uh, for the future how we deal with Scripture, this very erudite kind of approach cleaning up the language and making it uh, a little, little higher than common. But we've been on a journey to try and get the words that were written by the people who experienced these things into the hands of generations to come so that we can know the story. James was able with his translation to keep in place the power and order of the Episcopalian Church, the Anglican Church. And so he ordered that certain words be translated a certain way. There were, there were some vetoes he had here. Uh, number one, they kept the word church. They kept the word church, just like the Catholics did in their translations of Scripture. Ecclesia forever was translated as church and not congregation. And that's impacted the way our Bibles handle that word because it becomes part of the common usage. And now if someone were to put congregation in where Ecclesia is, it would seem out of place. The word servant, diakonos, became deacon because they had these church offices of deacons. Uh, kind of the, we, and how has that impacted us? I mean, our churches have deacons. We appoint deacons. We make this office out of it because that's what we read in Scripture. They, they have deacons. That word means servant, diakonos. It's, it's not meant to convey an official capacity, an office, a person with some kind of authority or responsibility. It just means a servant. And they handled it in this way to preserve the Anglican way of doing things, but in doing so, that's filtered its way down through even into the restoration movement of the 18th and 19th centuries and 20th century. The word elder or presbyter became bishop. That's the difference between the Presbyterian Church and the Anglican Church. The Presbyterian Church had local congregations that were autonomous. They did not have uh, this, this governing body uh, or someone who oversaw several of them. They had local presbyters, elders, shepherds. But that word became bishop in the King James in order to preserve the Anglican Church and the bishop's power. Most, famous, most famously, they came to the word baptizo, which means to immerse, to dip, or to plunge in the, in the Greek. And King James made sure it was changed to a transliteration, much like deacon. And that transliterated word uh, is, is baptize. Because baptize can mean whatever you want it to mean. It can mean sprinkle. It can mean, well, it means immerse. But King James, in order to try and avoid a fight between two sides, just made up a new word, baptize. Uh, what about one of the other transliterated words? Amen. Amen. We say amen at a, during a, you know, a prayer. We say amen uh, to a sermon. Um, it's very funny. We, we, don't, we don't think about this, but the word amen just means I agree or so be it. Amen. It's a transliterated word. It's a made-up word. Our modern word, or our modern way of expressing the same idea, is applause. 
We offer applause when we like something. Uh, we don't do a lot of that in church. I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, but if we were to use a modern version of that word, it would be to applaud something. But we have a made-up word, amen. Uh, the word apostle, also um, a, a, a kind of a made-up word. It means one sent or one called for, a, for an assignment, for a mission. Uh, and they changed that word to apostle. Messenger, the word messenger became angel. When you read in the Bible the word angel, you're just reading messenger. It doesn't necessarily mean spiritual. Uh, it, it could just be a messenger, someone who delivers a message for God. And it's not always a good angel or a good messenger. Sometimes we have messengers from Satan. Uh, so the point of all of this is that James, despite his prickly sensibility and his very political uh, mind in this translation, did end up giving us something that we could work with. And the King James Version of the Bible has now existed despite all of its revisions and lasted even till today. And it has influenced the way that more modern translations and versions have been edited and compiled. It gave rise to the removal of the Apocrypha. It gave rise to certain tone and language. It even introduced certain words into the lexicon and preserved certain words in the lexicon that came from the Catholic Church. And I think the point of all this, if there's a takeaway from all of these lessons about how we got the Bible, is two things. Number one, we have the story. This Bible has been on a remarkable journey. It's been all over the world, in a dozen different cultures, in a dozen different empires, in thousands of different places. And the words written by a nomadic desert people about their relationship with their God and about what he did to save mankind from sin and what those who followed him did in order to preserve that. We have it. A story that we have no business having in our hands by, by, by history and by time, we have. And we can know that it says what the original writers said. We have evidence. We can prove that this says what it said. And somehow it made it all the way through nations that no longer exist, through languages that are no longer spoken by anyone natively, into our hands in a language that we can read in a common tongue that we can understand. Never before in the history of the world has that happened. Ancient writings in dead languages, surviving thousands of years across the world throughout war to get into the hands of another people in their common language to be widely used, it's amazing, the journey and the story of this book. And more amazing is the story it tells. When we ask the question, how we got the Bible, it's kind of a long story. But the fact of the matter is that the story is still being written. The story of how we got the Bible is ongoing, because guess what? Just like in all of these lessons you've seen, languages go out of date, our language is going to be out of date one day. Our words and our idioms and our phrases and our definitions 
and our grammar, it's, it's going to go away, it's going to evolve, it's going to change, and someone else is going to come along, and they're going to take this story, and they're going to put it into a way they can understand it. We get hung up too much on versions and translations, and we argue too much about it. The fact is that all of it's temporary. You know, we have King James, New International, New American Standard, Revised Standard, English Standard, The Message, whatever. It's all an attempt to get this story in the most faithful way possible into the hands of the most people that can use it. And that's going to change. That's going to continue to evolve. The work of how we got the Bible continues. These lessons just tell you how they got to today. But a thousand years from now, who knows what that story will look like and how those words will have been carried forth. God has seen it to this point. God has made sure, and we can verify it, that the words that were written are the words that we have. And I trust that a thousand years from now, he'll make sure the same thing happens. It's an amazing journey because we have an amazing God. And I really appreciate you coming on that journey with me. Hope you found these lessons to be beneficial. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.